Welcome to Retail Intel. I'm Ashley Casey, Senior Director of National Accounts for Phillips Edison. Phillips Edison recently celebrated their one-year anniversary of being NASDAQ listed. With a history spanning over 30 years, the company has experienced a lot of changes, challenges, and triumphs. The past year has been an exciting time for the company. So in today's episode, I sit down with Jeff Edison, the CEO and co-founder of Phillips Edison. Jeff shares his personal perspective on where the company is today and the state of the retail industry at large. We also get down to some hard-hitting topics, like whether Jeff prefers cats or dogs. I'm excited to share this discussion with you. So we're recording this in July, which means we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of Phillips Edison's NASDAQ listing. I know as a team member of this company, I'm really excited. How does it make you feel? Well, first of all, thanks for doing this. This is awesome. You know, it's a really exciting time. You know, when you have spent so much time as really a private company, taking the big step of getting to be a public company, it's kind of scary um, when you first step into it. And uh, as we've grown over the last year, we've seen that this is just sort of a natural step for us. And it is giving us a lot of really what we think are unbelievable opportunities to raise capital and grow the business and take advantage of what opportunities are out there. So we're, we're excited about it. So how has the last year been for the company? Well, you know, knock on wood, it's been a really good year. It's, uh, you know, we've been in one of the best operating environments that the company has ever been in. And, uh, you know, we've spent 30 years building the team and, you know, we have, we have the best team in the industry. And when you put that team into a really good operating environment, you see unbelievable results. And unfortunately, we've been able to do that for the first year and really exceeding both our own expectations, but also the market's expectations for the the full first year that we did it. That's wonderful. And as a team member, I can feel kind of the momentum and the excitement around the success of the company as well. Um, In our most recent company meeting or town hall, our CFO, John Caulfield, emphasized the importance of storytelling. So I was hoping that in honor of where Phillips Edison is today, you can tell us the story of how we got started over 30 years ago. Sure, I'd love to. Really started in a Knights Inn. You remember those with the purple, (laughs) everything was purple. Um, We were at a Knights Inn in Danville, Virginia. Um, it was my dad, uh, my partner, Mike, and one of my dad's good friends and one of our early investors, uh, Bill Ford. And we were deciding whether to buy that very first center. And, uh, you know, we'd spent the day going around Danville and does, Danville's not a big town, so we didn't right. take a lot of a lot of time. But we were we were driving around and, and looking at it, walking through all the, the different stores and in, in the in the center and uh, deciding whether we wanted to buy that first center. And, uh, you know, we we got to a point where it was like, Kind of make a call. Are we a thumbs up or thumbs down, and we were all in. Um, we thought it was a great opportunity and a great, you know, just an investment opportunity at the time. Probably really not thinking this was going to be, you know, a business that we're going to build and all that. And uh, and then we we bought that center, and that really was the foundation of what we built now over almost thirty years. And uh, we very early on, when we bought that center, decided, look. The only way to be really good at retail is you have to build a fully integrated team. You can't be hiring people to do everything. You really got, you have to control it. And, you know, we are kind of control freaks and uh, we felt you you had to have your own leasing team. You had to have your own construction team. You, You had to have somebody with boots on the ground, making sure that your center was the best center uh, in town. And, you know, those early lessons um, that we learned 
really are what we did. And what I like to say is like, we've really had a pretty boring strategy since then, which is continuing to do the thing to today. We have, you know, over 300 centers, you know, we're in over 35 states and uh, really with that core focus on buying the number one or two grocer in the market, getting a center that's right size for the market. So it's really the grocery store, which is, you know, 50,000 square feet and then 60,000 square feet of small store space. And then taking that small store space and, you know, oftentimes when we buy these centers, we buy them from people who are not as experienced as we are and haven't really focused on how do you create the right merchandising mix for that center? And, you know, we we like to say we're, we're not in, you know, a big portfolio business. We're in the business of winning at every single center and each center is different. And so the merchandising mix in Danville is different than the merchandise mix in Richmond, Virginia, or in you know in uh, Sacramento, and getting the team to start to think, of, okay, how are we going to really maximize the shopping experience for everybody who shops there? And that is really addressing your market and being really locally smart about what what what's happening there, and then competing with you know boots on the ground in that in that market. So it's been a really fun uh, ride, and uh, you know I I think the one thing that you know we've done you know consistently is is learn from our mistakes and you know just every time we buy a center we do it better than the time before and you know that's you know paid off over a long time. Well that's definitely shown yeah. now that we've consistently grown and have over 300 centers in over 30 states. Yeah. But I wanted to tell you a story about Danville. Mm-hmm. So about 20 years after you bought the Danville Shopping Center, yeah. Nordan. Yeah. I started in the industry in 2012. And my company at the time owned the Danville Mall. And so oh, I've yeah. been to Danville plenty <laughs> of times. It is a very small town, Southern Virginia, rich in charm and history. But it's not really the first city you would think of. No, it's not a real sexy city. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering why, why Danville? Um, you know, it was it was really an opportunity. Um, you know, we it was a center that had been owned by a syndicator who had then lost the center, gave it back to the bank, and we ended up buying it from the bank. And uh, it was an opportunity, and we looked at a bunch of them. This one seemed to fit with what we were sort of visioning. It's great yeah. today. Yeah. I mean, the Walmart neighborhood market, it's almost fully leased from what I remember. So, well, we've, we've, it's gone through, you know, a lot of different <laughs> things over the uh, 30 years that we've owned it. And uh, it's kind of amazing we still own it today, but mm-hmm. uh, doing it, you know, it's doing, doing well and continues to be a, a center that, you know, holds on to those core values of grocer, the right amount of small store space. And then the right kind of merchandising and you know, upkeep of the center to, to make it really, really address the market. Sure. And so speaking of small towns, there's been an especially strong conversation about suburban shift, a lot of population moving to the suburbs. And Phillips Edison's assets are primarily suburban focused. Do you see this trend as growing or stabilized? I think we're in probably the third inning. Um, it's still got a long way to go. We have been very fortunate that there's a large chunk of the population that is now looking for suburban housing. You know, they're having kids, they're looking for more space. And, you know, the, the suburbs are what offer that. And it's kind of been doing that for, you know, since the 50s, really, you know, when when that, that suburbanization started. And, um, you know, I think that's going to continue. We, we think that there's strong 
uh, growth in that in that area. We think that the Sun Belt's going to continue to see really good, strong growth, and those two things have been really strong to help our centers. And you know, there's other things that have been going on. I mean, like work from home has brought people closer to our centers more of the day, and so they're shopping, they're getting their lunch there instead of next to the office building where they used to go. And we don't see that as changing. When we think that that's going to continue to be, you know, that's part of sort of what's going to happen going forward. It may be a little less, a little more as times go on, but it is going to continue to help our centers. And I think one of the fascinating things that's going on now is that as suburbanization has happened, a lot of the national retailers who were who had built out their entire urban footprint. I mean, you think of Starbucks where there was, you know, there's on every block or there's two Starbucks now in New York. Right. In New York. You know, they hadn't built their sur- suburban footprint out the same way. And uh, that's what they're doing now. And whether it's Trolle or or uh, Starbucks or just a variety of the national tenants, they realize that to be successful, they've got to be close to where the consumer is. And as you know, people are spending more of their time in the suburbs, they've got to attract that. And so, you know, we're seeing really strong demand from our national tenants for uh, space. And you know, when they got to the suburbs, they had to go, go you know, where do I want to be? Right. Retail, it's very nice. You want to be at the corner of Maine and Maine. Right. And that's where our centers are. And you want to be somewhere where consumers go. And, you know, our customers shop 1.6 times a week at our grocery stores. And if you think of where Maine and Maine is for retail, it's where people go the most often. And that's, you know, our grocers have been a great help to us in drawing those people there. And then our small stores taking advantage of that. And, you know, it, it really makes it's the convenience part of shopping that, you know, our centers fulfill and as well as the necessities side. So just from a personal perspective, I'm 32, right? And I used to live in the heart of Atlanta, but recently moved out to the suburbs. And just like you were saying, there's a sweet green that just opened right across the street from me. And generally we would think of this as a very urban uh, restaurant concept, but they also recently went public and I met with their group out in uh, California and they were emphasizing heavily their suburban strategy. So it goes right in hand with what you're saying. And, you know, at my age, I have more disposable income than prior. And so just like that, I'm spending my money where I grocery shop, where I work out and oftentimes where I work, which sometimes is home now. So I completely understand and agree with your strategy in a similar vein, just like you mentioned the Sunbelt migration. Phillips Edison was already well positioned with uh, assets in Florida, Georgia, California, Arizona, Texas, you say you see this trend is continuing. How does that affect the strategy of Phillips Edison? Well, we, you know, it's it's funny because we we've been in the acquisition market for 30 years. So when we look at a market, we're a little bit agnostic to where it is um, because our centers compete in a three-mile radius. They don't compete regionally or in like we always say we don't we don't compete in Atlanta. We compete at the corner of two streets that come together. And so we've got to be able to know that area and be able to take that market and really put the best that we can there. So probably five to 10 years ago, we came up with our first algorithm and it's continued to evolve. And that we use that algorithm to evaluate each market. 
And that, we think, is a big advantage. Now, that algorithm tends to push us more towards Sunbelt because it's got more growth. You've got increasing education levels. You've got things that are happening in those markets that, are, that push us to those markets. But we'll, we just bought a project in Minneapolis, and we think it's going to be phenomenal. Um, because its trade area is exactly what we're looking. It's growing, it's got strong consumer base, and we have a great grocer. So it's, it's that kind of thing that allows us to shop across the country, not just in the Sun Belt. But if you look at where our growth has been, it will continue to probably be primarily, not, not probably, but, but the Sun Belt will get more of our investment dollars than probably other, other markets. Sure. Um, so shifting gears just a little bit, the company's first month of NASDAQ listing was July of 2021. This came after a year of extreme uncertainty, not only in the retail market, but in the global zeitgeist. So what drove the decision to go public when we did? First of all, we were very lucky in our timing. You know, probably three to four years before we listed, we decided we wanted to get the company ready for that. We we sold off 40 assets that didn't fit our core strategy. And we put the entire organization together into one company. And we basically prepared ourselves for uh, getting public. Now, we had a very strong retail investor base. That retail investor base, you know, we told them we would get them liquidity um, when the timing was right. So we wanted to be ready. And uh, that window opened in uh, really... July and a little bit of August last year, and we were able to jump in and take advantage of it. So you've seen a lot of market shifts throughout your over 30-year career. I know your career began before Phillips Edison began, so I only want to lightly touch on it, but 2020 was a really unique year for a, a lot of reasons, and the retail industry saw a lot of effects. So Phillips Edison's assets were already very well positioned, but was there ever a time when you thought, I'm nervous, I'm worried about what it looks like at the end of this? Yeah, I would say that was one of the one or two most challenging times for us. And it was challenging because there were so many new decisions we had to make every day. And whether that was work from home or whether that was how do you handle the pandemic and how do you make sure you keep everybody safe, but also continue to uh, manage your, your business. There were just literally every day, there was a bunch of new issues that came up and we had to figure them out and then react. And so it was, it was really challenging. And, you know, the, the thing that I sort of most impressed with in throughout the pandemic was the strength of our local retailers, um, because we were always told, Oh, you're, you guys do great, but when when things are bad, your small your small stores are going to go. I'll go out, and you know we we lost less than one percent of our occupancy during the entire pandemic, and it's because a lot of our local neighbors are entrepreneurs, and they can't lose. They have to make their business work, and you know what? They're some of the hardest working. Um, and and great retailers around, and you know they they had to make it work, and you know that's testament to the fact that we lost less than 1% is just remarkable. And if you have asked me, you know, starting 2020, that, that we were looking for things to happen a lot worse than that, than that happened. And, you know, certainly there were government programs that helped and there was a lot of things, but at the core of it, it was the, uh, to me, it's the entrepreneur in our centers that really held strong. And uh, 
I love the story. We, we were in Sacramento during the pandemic and I was walking to one of our centers and there was a Chinese restaurant that was trying to survive, right? And so they had taken their front door, they built, they put a plexiglass in it and a little door so you could get your deliveries and come up. And then on the sidewalk in front of them, they put up probably 10 different tables. And then they put a margarita machine there. Oh so my goodness. The Chinese restaurant <laughs> is selling margaritas, which may not be totally <laughs> consistent, but you know what? They had to do it to survive. And they didn't ask our permission, they just did it. I mean, that's a small example, but that's consistently what the retailers were doing shop after shop. And they were attracting people to come. And it's remarkable. It's a great, it's a great testament to the strength of those retailers. So what you're saying is an entrepreneurship takes innovation to succeed. And we saw a really trying time. And yeah. our retailers, in most cases, thrived post-pandemic and really did what they could to survive during that time. Yeah. From a consumer perspective, we saw a lot of trends accelerate throughout that time period, two and a half years, really, that yeah. I didn't even know I was missing. Yeah. Um, and I know Phillips Edison has done a great job at creating an omni-channel experience. Yeah. So what does omni-channel mean to you? So omni-channel has been evolving now for a long time, but basically it, it goes to one of the simplest things that in, in retail, which is if you're going to be good at it, you have to give the consumer what they want. And what's evolved during the pandemic and really before was the shopper didn't want to do any one kind of shopping. They didn't want to get everything online. They didn't want to do everything focus um, and, and pick it up. They didn't want to do everything in the store. They wanted the option to do whatever they wanted to do that day. And they wanted to do it in the most convenient way they could. And because of that, when the pandemic hit, and as we know, accelerated all this, this process, anybody who was resisting that got in trouble because you had to have you had to have an omni-channel approach. And as you look, all that's happened is that's just accelerated what was an evolving customer demand. And that's the retail business. And uh, if you don't innovate and adapt to what the consumer wants, you don't survive. And it's a brutal business that way, but it's really, it just shows you how you know great the, the, retails, the retailers were. And it was national, regional, across the board. Everybody knew they had to do it. And our grocers were also leaders in that, which was really amazing because a lot of the grocers were kind of sleepy, but they heard the warning signs they have they've adapted and whether it's and you look at our you know we're we're Kroger's largest landlord mm -hmm. and you know Kroger is full 100% committed to getting the consumer what they want and that means being able to do whatever they want and if, if they come up with something else they want they're going to have to do that because that's that's how they keep their customers and then and encourage them to be even more loyal than they are now and every day I'm reading more about online retailers creating a brick and mortar presence. Yeah. So I really think the two go hand in hand. You kind of have to have both silos to really succeed now. Absolutely. I think of Amazon and I think the last thing Amazon wanted to do was to build out a bricks and mortar retail business. Like it's just they that that's just not who they are. And they kind of proven that they're not yet great at it. You never underestimate Amazon because they're always that they will get there. But you know, what they've done with Whole Foods and what they did with the bookstores, and they weren't able to differentiate the way they have been able to do in the online business. But as they're finding out, and as everybody who had an online only uh 
sort of digital native start, it's getting more expensive to acquire customers. And the least expensive way to do that is with bricks and mortar. And, you know, Amazon's going to build out, I think, an entire grocery chain. They're going to continue to try different retail concepts that will get them more customers and get their customer to be even more loyal than they are today. Sure. And they just announced acquisition of One Medical. So venturing into the brick and mortar primary care sector, it's it's interesting to see how they're adapting and and growing, growing multifaceted business. Yeah, it's really cool. I think the whole medical business is deciding they also need to be closer to the consumer. Oh, yes. And that's what I think Amazon's seeing is that they may not be great at it on the retail side, but they could maybe that maybe on the medical side they could do that and and, be, and with a big acquisition like that and really become get closer to the consumer. So Phillips Edison refers to tenants as neighbors. This is yeah. even in our 10K, our annual yeah. financial report. Yeah. Why is this? Well, during the IPO, we got a lot of business about it. <laughs> it was actually really funny because none of the investment bankers like, why are you doing this? And it's really a mindset for the company that we're trying to create community at every center that we own. And if you treat the retailers as neighbors, like they're part of that community. And so it just reinforces it for everybody in the company that, oh, that's our neighbor. Um, how would I treat my neighbor? And if you treat your retailers like you would neighbors, it's a pretty good proxy for good customer service and you know having them be successful, which sure. is the key to our, our success. Hopefully that's reciprocal, right? Like your neighbor is hopefully going to help you improve your community as well. That's rising yeah, right. tide. That's what they right. yeah, it's 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 a hand in hand. Yeah. Sure. It's really nice. So Phillips Edison is not only a great landlord, they're a great company to work for. And I know this from personal experience, but Phillips Edison was just named the best place to work for one of the best places to work for the sixth year in a row. Can you tell me what sets Phillips Edison's culture apart? It's hard to say this because everybody says it. It's the people and the team who run the business believe strongly that in order to really be successful, you have to continue to create challenges for people. You got to continue to create opportunities for people. And you got to have a place where when people walk in the door, they're happy to go there. Not dreading going to work, but excited and engaged because that's what makes the company great. And uh, we work really hard at that from our HR team through our senior leadership. um, You know, we we spend a tremendous amount of time on that and making sure that everybody in the company has a development plan. Mm -hmm. Where where are you going to be five years from now? What's going to what's going to get you juice to get out of bed and go hammer five years from now? And and then providing the tools so that you can get wherever that wherever that is. And if you take that across the company, it becomes contagious because the culture isn't the you know, leadership team. The culture is the entire people, everyone, there, and, and how they treat everybody else while they're at the um, uh, at the office and uh, or online, um, however that is. But they have to have they got to feel like I'm in a great place. I love being here. I love the people. When you create that, it's energizing. I agree. And there are so many personal development and career development opportunities within the company, which I think genuinely helps for employees to feel like I want to support this company the best I can because I feel I'm being being supported 
the best I can be. So I agree. And I totally support the best places to work accolade. So there's still a status in the company and there's Jeff Edison, the person. So to wrap up the conversation, I just want to ask you a few quick fire questions. Just tell me the the first thing that comes to mind. Yes. Cats or dogs? Uh, Dogs. Favorite vacation destination? All of the American parks. What's your favorite go-to on the road fast food restaurant? I don't have a great <laughs> You're I, I'm, I'm not a, a big variety. <laughs> I mean, I usually love more the local. Sure. You know, where you go in and it's it might be a you know cafe, it might be a you know just a breakfast place, but the places where the you, you walk in, you can tell that the owner's there. Right. Because it's it just feels special. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of Danville, actually. They have yeah. a lot of great local yeah. restaurants there. Yeah. Um, I'm always dying to try the next place that has a, a chicken sandwich that yeah. they're trying yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're working out. There are a lot of those guys competing now. Yes. Um, what time is your morning alarm set for? I don't set alarm. Oh, but my wife, My wife um, gets up. She works at our farm and she's up at six every morning. So nice. I'm always up when she's up. So I'm just glad you didn't say something crazy like 4 30. No, no, no. I, I, love sleep. <laughs> I love my sleep. So I'm not, no, but I'm on your yeah, page. Yeah. Um, and what is your most used phone or I, what is your most used app on your iPhone? I mean, I use my chins thing a lot for playing golf. I use my, uh, there's a, a route, a routing system in. For I mountain bike a lot, so I use that oh, cool. a ton. And then we have a there's a bunch of good skiing apps that I use for for skiing. So those are the ones I use the the most often for fun. So national parks, golfing, and skiing yeah. <laughs> defines and, Jeff Addison. Biking, I love my mountain biking. Probably my my favorite. Um, and finally, what piece of advice would you give someone looking to grow in their career? I hate to use the cliche, but it is, and it is a cliche. But find something that you like to do and you'll do it better don't don't think about the money don't think about the future or anything but but do something that when the when the alarm clock goes off in the morning it's not oh god i gotta go <laughs> the sunday scary but it's like oh yeah i get to do this today <laughs> right and and that's different for everybody um you know because everybody has a little different thing that gets them excited but if, if you can think about like who you really are and what really actually not not what is supposed to get you excited or you think should get you excited or stuff, but what actually, you know, actually excites you. Um, if you do that, you'll be unbelievably successful. I found that sometimes what excites you can also scare you a little, get you out of your comfort zone. You, there, there aren't many things that are boring that get you excited. Like, so you need that. <laughs> there needs to be a little anxiety, a little a little fear, a little excitement, all that going on. Cause that's, I mean, that, that's what keeps you engaged. Sure. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you for listening to this very special episode. And thank you, Jeff, for joining us to celebrate Phillips Edison's one year anniversary of our NASDAQ listing. I'm looking forward to the future of this company. Stay connected with us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. If you'd like to connect with me or the rest of the National Accounts team, shoot us an email at nationalaccounts at philipsedison.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. Hint, it's a hot one.